I only hope Blake survived long enough to realize that he was winning both wars. And welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And in this episode, we are starting Series C. We are doing Aftermath, written by Terry Nation. He's back. Directed by Via Lorimore. First broadcast on the 7th of January, 1980. Ratings this time, 9.5 million. Yeah, which is another jump. It's another jump, and it's the biggest since ORAC. Wow. Before we get started, uh, look, we should say apologies for the uh, extended break in transmission. This is the first episode that we're uh, recording post-COVID, living here as we do in the most lockdown city in the world. Yes, we did make a decision very early on that we want this podcast to be as good as we can make it. Mm -hmm. And part of that is the... Uh, being in the same room together, being in the same room together, to, together to record these. Yeah, like everybody else in the world, or COVID affected us as well. Probably me, probably a fraction more than Dave. As I said, we are out of lockdown. We are back, and we're ready to keep pushing on now through Blake Seven. We will. So, aftermath. Yes, I, I guess probably to set the scene and uh, bring everyone back up to speed. What it is uh, previously on Space Four. <laughs> <laughs> We mentioned, obviously, in our Season 2 discussions that Terry Nation left Chris Boucher to write the Series 2 finale from the storyline that they discussed, while Nation himself went on to write the opening episodes to the new series to resolve the situation. So, we are in the new series, Terry Nation is back, and to get us started, Dave, what are your initial thoughts? Well, again, to pick off where we left off in our Series B special, as I said then, I'm walking into Series C... With a little bit of trepidation, it, mm-hmm. it's the season that I remember as being the weakest, and it's also yep. the season that I've watched the least over the years. Yes. And I particularly was walking into Aftermath a little bit nervous, because my memory of it wasn't that good. I'm pleased to say, watching it again, it has gone up quite a bit in my estimation. Mm-hmm. I'm not about to say that it's an absolute classic. Mm. Uh, in fact, I think it's the weakest of the four season openers. Well, you probably disagree because I love Redemption more than you. Yeah. But I do think it's a lot better than I remember. There are a couple of incredibly naff points which have dragged yes. it down in my memory. And we will certainly discuss those. Mm-hmm. But there's actually a lot of good stuff going on here. It seems to work. And yeah, better than I remembered is my opening gambit. Yeah, I'm probably much the same. I also, like you, haven't watched a lot of Series 3 for a long time. I think I said in the Series 2 special, if you'd asked me at the start of this project, I would have said that Series 3 probably is my least favourite series of the show overall. So I also, again, was approaching this with a little bit of trepidation. But I have to say, I was actually quite pleasantly surprised. I think there is a fair bit for this episode to do, uh, given where we wound up at the end of Series B and where the show is at now. And look, I think it generally succeeds. It's not without its problems, but look, I thought it was a solid opening to the season, certainly. So, Richard, we have divided the season up between us. Yes. And you've got the first two. Yes. So, uh, over to you to lead us through Aftermath. Well, yeah, I broke this one down into three discussion threads. The first of which was the Intergalactic War, which I guess is sort of the first five, ten minutes. Yep. I then had a section on Dana 
and the Melon Bees, which I guess is probably the middle part of the episode, perhaps. That, that long forgotten 70s pop group. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy Cool Hal Melonby. <laughs> And then the final discussion point really is Serverland, which I guess is probably once she really starts driving a lot of the plot, the sort of last third. I guess the first thing we probably need to say, actually, the discussion point is we see some new opening credits. We do. They are much simpler. Yes, that was a note I had. And certainly where the season one and two opening credits are very dystopian and very Mm. dark society, this is now... Space adventure. Yes. I suppose, look, it retains the idea that the Liberator is being chased by the Federation, but that's about all it retains, really. That There's no other indicators about what's been happening in the series up to this point. No, but at least on this occasion, they can actually do the graphics to Dudley Simpson's score <laughs> rather than the other way. In, yes, and they're not true. quite working so Indeed, badly. That, that's true. That is a good point. Uh, we then get into the opening where I just sort of made comment that Pretty much every piece of stock model footage they have in the cupboard is shown. We get the ships from Star One again. We get the pursuit yep. ships from Hostage. We get the ship from Killer. Yep. We get the red flashing light effect from Breakdown. <laughs> they pick up the cliffhanger quite well because we are straight into a space battle. Look, the way it's presented is really in keeping with what we saw at the end of Star One. In a modern series, obviously, look, it would be a big extravaganza, big CGI thing with space battles and ships being destroyed and that everywhere. Given this isn't the focus of the story, I mean, let's face it, the title of the episode is Aftermath. It's not intergalactic war. (laughs) So they're not going to blow the budget on setting up a heap of stuff that's forgotten in the first minute of the story. But watching it as part of a continual run and having been a fan of Blake 7 for 40 plus years... It is actually a bit naff, but... It is, and unfortunately it does, again, have that collision from Star One. Yes, which Where is... the explosion just happens a fraction too late, and it's, it's very frustrating. I must admit, as a kid, particularly, one thing that really threw me was, after they show that explosion and the ship blowing up, they yep. say, Star One has been destroyed. Yes. And it really reads as though that ship was Star mm. One. Yeah, so I guess getting back into the story... There clearly has been a bit of time elapsed since Star One. I probably had it as a few weeks to maybe two or three months. I don't know that it's certainly longer. It's certainly long enough that Blake is now healed. Yes. And he's back in control of the ship. Indeed. We see the Liberator at various points during the battle montage, so clearly they've played a very active part in defeating the aliens. So And, and just got worn down and... Yes. Can no longer function. That's right. I mean, look, they've made it back clearly into the galaxy. I don't know where Saren is, but it's not near Star 1. But yes, the Liberator has now really taken so much damage that the ship can't even sustain life support. System malfunction on blocks 2 and 3. Villa, go and check the life support capsules. On my way. Zen, status report. Damage to the navigation computers is beyond the present capacity of the auto repair systems. The teleport malfunction is now total. Automatic shutdown has been implemented. Avon is clearly only on Saren for a day or two, so obviously the auto repairs make a decent job of the ship quite quickly, but they do have to evacuate. Looks like Blake and Jenner have already evacuated. Or have gone to a different part of the ship. Yes, they use the life pods on the other side of the ship. Yep. I noted the interesting use of the swirl effect around Avon's life capsule as it's passing through the atmosphere, sort of the oil swirl type thing. Yes, I'll be bringing that up a bit later. (laughs) (laughs) Just a bit of foreshadowing there. No. 
The effect I did think was really good, when the capsule's on the ground, they've done that practical effect to make it look like it's still smouldering from passing through the atmosphere. That looked really good. Yeah, what I think actually works quite well here as well in terms of plot points is that clearly the Liberator life capsules are a lot more sophisticated than what we've seen in the past. The thing in Deliverance, yeah, which is basically just sort of a padded box. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. that's right. They, they clearly have some sort of motive power. Yeah. They can clearly go a bit of a distance. And I think it works in story terms that because the others are conscious, they can actually sort of pile and try and get away from the battlefield. Yes. Whereas because Avon is unconscious, basically mm. it just drops out of the Liberator and heads to the nearest planet. Yes, which is probably good he had Orac with him. It's it very really? fortunate <laughs> that he had Orac with him. But I guess that's why Avon is sort of on the planet underneath the battle. Yeah. And the others have been able to disperse a bit of a distance. Yeah. Orac, you will have to handle it. Instruct the computer. Get us down. Get us down. Now, of course, when we do land on Saren, it's another regressed society, which in this instance consists of a few medieval-looking men, one of whom is Stuart Fell, (laughs) and with only one speaking part. So there's really not a lot of chance for development or anything there. (laughs) No, it's very obvious that Shell is just doing a lot of talking at his men. Yes. He doesn't even get somebody to do a bit of prompting or anything like that. No. I will say on a positive note, look, Alan Lake does really seem to be throwing himself into this. Yes. But, as you say, it is him just shouting about the prophesied end of the world and killing the outsiders. So, there's not a lot really there for him to work with. The Sarans aren't there just to provide a generic threat for the main cast, really. Just a bit of tension here and there, as, as required. Yeah, pretty much. It begins. Hunt them down. Destroy the strangers. Hunt them down and kill them. Kill them! Kill them! Shall we talk then about the result of the battle? Because we meet two Federation troopers who've escaped. Yes, one of whom is Richard Franklin. One of whom is Richard Franklin. We'll be talking about him later as well. Yes, and and then we get the sort of info dump about the outcome of the war. Yeah, so there's a couple of points that I want to take away from that, given that we are diving very deep into the series. When we talked about Star One, we sort of made that comment about, well, how effective can a minefield be? Because yep. at some point you can go around it. And I think what this is actually implying is that once the alien fleet arrived, yes, some of them did go through the minefield, but they've had weeks to actually traverse and go around it, and that spread the battle out. And then they've sort of had to come into the galaxy at different points. Yep. The other thing that's very interesting is basically the only reason that the aliens lost was their supply line was literally intergalactic in in nature. Yeah. And it's that whole thing about once you go that distance, what you take with you is what you've got. That's right. The Federation just has more ships to throw at the problem, basically. Exactly. They can call on reinforcements. Plus whatever Liberator took out, I guess. But Exactly. The Federation can call on reinforcements and the aliens can't. And although we're another year or so from the Falklands War... It does sort of feel very much like yeah, that. Yeah, well, of course. That, no, the, the Falklands Task Force. That, yes, that did really expose the British supply lines very yeah, much Yeah, so. absolutely. And that basically what you send at the start is what you have yeah. the whole thing. So that, I think, actually worked quite well. And I'll just note here as well, at this point, the Liberator is at 54% capacity. But it doesn't really matter how much it is if one of, some of that percent <laughs> is life support. <laughs> yes. Now, we mentioned the violent natives. They, of course, turn up and murder the two Federation officers. Off screen. Yes. And then attack Avon. But, of course, Avon's our hero, so he obviously is saved at the last moment. 
this point, the episode obviously introduces Dana. My notes here were that she's shown very much sort of at that classical huntress. You know, you look at those representations of Artemis, Diana, and the white dress with the bow. My note was that she has a very, very quixotic opening in that within the space of a couple of moments, she's arrived, she's shot someone with an arrow, she's kissed Avon, she calls him beautiful, <laughs> she makes a quick explanation that she's not one of the natives, she's from Earth, and we all sort of go on. And look, I will say at this point, and I'll start what's probably going to be a bit of a theme for this yep. episode and many more about Chessette Simon rising above the dialogue that the she occasionally gets. Yes. That is all very, very stilted dialogue. And she does actually quite a good job of delivering it. Yes. And, and Darrow actually seems to give her a bit of space. Mm. And he turns his performance down quite a bit as well. What was that for? Curiosity. I'm all in favour of healthy curiosity. I hope yours isn't satisfied too easily. I think you've cured my headache. What's your name? Avon. You are very beautiful, Avon. So are you. Dana. Are you a native of this planet? The ones that tried to kill you are the natives. Do I look like them? So where do you come from? I was born on Earth. I think a lot of other commentators including actually Chris Boucher and Terry Nation, have indicated that Dana and her father really are based on Miranda and Prospero from Shakespeare's The Tempest, up to the point, as you say, of Dana kissing Avon as the first new man that she's encountered. She says that the Sarans are afraid of her, so we do probably get that idea that she's been stalking and hunting and potentially killing them as she tests and proves her skill. Certainly the whole scene is very good at making it quite apparent that she is firstly very capable Mm. and secondly very ruthless. Yes, Indeed, to the point where she's ready to just murder an unconscious Saren. Yes, that's right, until Avon stops her, yeah. Which itself is an interesting development for Avon, because whilst I wouldn't see him actively going and just slaughtering unconscious people in the past, I'm not sure he would care enough to intervene in the past No. And now, perhaps we're starting to see a bit more of that hero, Avon. Maybe. Perhaps indicating where they plan to take the series. Yes, Can I just note here as well, the location work for this segment not being a quarry is actually really effective. Yeah, nice change. It's it's a nice change, and that beach actually works quite well, particularly the uh, the little bands they have when they're trying to get into the uh, the base. the undersea base, yes. (laughs) There. I don't see anything. The sea. Oh, I can see the sea. That is our base. You live underneath it. In it. In it? Listen, I'm not very keen on water sports, even at the best of times. Don't worry. This is not the best of times. They obviously get down into the base and they meet Dana's father. I do have to say, Cy Grant as Hal Mellonby gave what actually feels like a bit of a stilted performance. Whether he doesn't sort of quite get the material he's being asked to deliver or it just doesn't feel quite right for the episode. I think that when he has proper real character moments where he's got to mm. interact with people. He's he's actually not too bad. Mm. I agree, though, when he's just got large slabs of exposition. Yeah. I, I don't think he quite knows what he's doing with it. Blake? You were with Blake? Yes, though it hardly seems to matter now, if it ever did. If it mattered, Blake and the Liberator? I've been hearing reports for the last couple of years. You were magnificent. Not from where I was sitting. You're doubly welcome here. So, are we going to have the Hal Mellonby discussion? Well, look, we might as well since we've started talking about him. So, I think Hal Mellonby is easily the most interesting character in this. And I think this is another example in Blake 7 
of a lot going on under the surface. Yes. Some of which is perhaps fan extrapolation. But I, I don't think that what we're going to be talking about now is not, at least in some ways, rooted on in, in what's on the screen. Yep. Particularly because we get two quite different mm. background stories from Hal Mellenby. Or, or I guess three, really, if you count. Because he, he's obviously told Dana a heavily edited version of what led them to be on Saren. Yes. And he really doesn't give Avon quite the full story either. Yes, so he basically just tells Dana he didn't like not being a free citizen yes. and to flee and find his freedom. And the reason we're hiding is because the Federation will make us go and live back on Earth in a dome city if they find out we're here. Yeah, basically. He gives a bit more information to Avon, which is that he was part of the Resistance. Mm. There's a three million credit price on his head. He talks of his defection. Yep. So whether he was actually actively working for the Federation or just... Yeah. Affected as a citizen. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a defection. It's not that he flees. Yeah. It's actually that he sort of switched sides, really. Yes, and he says that he had a chance to save Dana and get away. Yep. Now, he also talks about the fact that he was tortured and questioned about supplying weapons to the mm. Resistance. Now, it's not quite clear whether all of that is part of one incident yep. or not. Serverland then gives a more graphic and more honest version of what he did, uh, including the comment that he led a revolt that took more than three weeks to crush. Yeah. And then there's sort of that exchange about the guilt that he might feel. Mm. The implication I've always taken from it is that Mellonby at some level betrayed his Yes, people. I think so. And I think that's the thing about he had an opportunity to save Dana. So he either obviously just turned on his co-conspirators. Yeah, I think that that's one version, is that yeah. he just betrayed them in exchange for his life and Dana's yeah. life. Or I think the other version that I think is perhaps the more interesting one is that at some point he has got away, he's in hiding, he mm. gets whisper of what's about to happen. Yep. And it's that sort of moment where, you know, the hero can either run away and save himself yes. or sacrifice himself to warn his friends. Yep. We know that if that was Blake, mm. Blake would go and warn his friends at the risk of his own yes, life. Yes, whereas Mellonby chose to take off, really, before he could be picked up. Yeah, the yeah. Federation's coming. Well, I haven't got time to warn you guys. Sorry, I'm taking my kid yeah. and I'm gone. Yeah. So it's quite interesting there. There's a lot of stuff going on there and a lot of layers to the character. And he is clearly not quite the lovely, cool daddy no, that we see. All. He is an arms trader. Yep. He did defect. He did betray his people there is stuff for him to be guilty about. Yes, and knows clearly that everybody he left behind branded him a coward and a traitor and know that he ran out on them. And I don't think it's survivor guilt, really. It's more actual guilt. Actual because, guilt, yeah. Yes, he left them to burn, basically. And it's clearly not said overtly, but clearly the case that one of the things he's quite worried about is that now Servalance here, mm. Dana's going to learn a bit more about who he yes. really is. We were promised fair trial. Instead, the security forces massacred everyone, men, women, and children. That night, I watched them all die. My own wife, my friends, everybody. Everybody but you. Hasn't that ever made you feel guilty, Mellonby? Of course it has. I've lived with guilt most of my life. I should have died with them. But I had a chance of saving Dana. I took it. They branded you a coward. Your name was universally despised. Might have been true. I've never been sure. One quick point. Talked about him trading weapons and developing weapons while they're there on Saren. The question of what he and Dana are actually doing with the weapon systems they devised goes unanswered. 
Now they sort of sidestep around it both times it's raised. Look, clearly they are doing some sort of interaction, mm. and I think they're clearly selling them or providing them to somebody, and there is some trade going on because it's not unreasonable to assume that when he stole and grounded the fixed orbit station, it didn't come with a whole variety of, you know, women's clothing. No. And, you know, toddlers <laughs> and child's clothing to get no, Dana through the, the first 18 years. And, you know, and they don't have replicators in, like, seven universes. No, so. and he's clearly not living on rags and recycled water. No. So, so clearly they are interacting with people out there, yes. but obviously in a very, very cautious way. Indeed. Next thing I've heard here really is how Lauren comes to be with them. He says that she's his adopted daughter, but you sort of have that idea. Did he sort of abduct her as a playmate or a companion for I've, Dana? Or? I've always taken it, and for Australians, it really feels very sort of stolen generation. I sort of had the other idea that maybe it's some sort of nature versus nurture bizarre experiment type thing that he's running, but I don't think so. I think it is a case. Maybe he either found her abandoned or actively went and took her so that Dana would have some companionship. Yeah, absolutely, and, and again, it's sort of shows that Mellonby's morality is not quite the morality no. we would be comfortable with. No, I mean, we then have the moment. Chell obviously knows that Lauren's a, a native of Saren. You know, he does it. Welcome back to your people. I don't actually know quite what her purpose in the story is. It's sort of almost like you just need another speaking part. Look, I think it does add a little bit to the ambiguity of who Mellonby is. Yeah. And it, and it does really reinforce the point that Dana is lost everything. Yeah. And I think just gives an extra blend to the story. Yeah, true. What's interesting I find in this whole setup is the mixed morality that goes on. Mm. Mellonby clearly wants to give the impression of I'm a nice guy, I will mellow, I just want to hurt them, whereas Dana, you know, wants to destroy things, she wants to kill things, she has to be told not to set it on kill, yep. she has to be told to stop inflicting pain. And and he sort of gets to be the, the wise counsel and she's the <laughs> wild young person. But at the same time, Mellonby has what I think what we now call very imperialist and racist sort of views because he treats the Saren as like basically lab rats. They'll yeah. associate that area with pain. That, that sort of Pavlov thing, yeah, hatch equals pain. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas they're like, well, clearly we were just shot at. It came from over there. And Dana has that moment too where Avon says, you know, are you a native of the planet? And she's like, well, I don't look like one of them. Yes, yes. There are definitely some tones in there that how much they're deliberate and how much it's just yep. the writing coming through, I'm not sure. But... Yes, very interesting stuff going on with the Mellonbees. The final point I'll just make about Lauren that I think confirms my view that she's just there to really give that final hammer blow to to Dana's life is that she does die incredibly quickly. Yes, well, next morning, really. Yes, so that's quite interesting. But their life is turned upside down by the arrival of Servalan. Yes, first point I had here with Servalan is this is the first time we've seen Servalan as a solo antagonist. Usually she's either been backed up with other Federation people or Travis. And I have to say, I actually think she really shines in this one. Yeah, her opening scene is really effective. We see her alone on the beach. She's obviously found the two murdered yep. troopers and she's a little bit nervous and a little bit wary. I think we kind of all know that her trying to get in touch with the Federation with that tiny little miscommunicator... <laughs> 
isn't going to happen. But the way that Jacqueline Pierce plays it, and it's really effective, is you get that sense that she knows it's pointless as well. Mm. She's just absolutely desperate. And it it is that thing that Pierce can do of Serverland looking rattled. You can tell she's rattled mm. without quite losing her composure. Yep. President Serverland forced down on planet Saren. Rescue is now your first priority. Repeat. Rescue takes precedence over everything. Message ends. Acknowledge transmission. Answer me, damn you! Answer me! We obviously then come across what, what we'll call the main contrivance, perhaps, in the story. <laughs> now, I will say, in the episode's defence, it does very quickly go through, hey, Serverland's here too, with a couple of lines and then really just gets on with the story. Oh, but, it, it, it is very, very clearly lampshaded as, yes. look, we get this is a massive coincidence. Yeah, uh, for sure. It's TV, let's just get on yeah, with it. Yeah, Avon show. gets his line about being the most unlikely <laughs> thing, so of course it happens, but yeah. Yeah, and look, I'm kind of glad they do lampshade it. Look, it's television, that's yeah. what happens. Watching Servalan ingratiate herself into the Melonbees is really, really good. Mm. And Servalan is one character, I think, who doesn't deteriorate certainly over the two seasons we've seen it so far and we again see that yes she will use violence where she has to use violence but if she can use her wiles her femininity her charm she absolutely will and she sort of knows that she's in a vulnerable position at the start yes she knows that she's unarmed she knows that they've got the power and she really just ingratiates herself very very carefully it is revealed that she was there basically to oversee the final battles as sort of a pr move come out and thank the troops type deal it confirms that her coup at the end of star one has clearly been yes. successful and also you note that she hasn't put herself in any personal danger until it's really obvious that the federation have won which is in keeping with what we see in the earlier episodes where when her life is directly threatened she will invariably back down yes as you said, she is immediately then trying to control each situation. You know, she bluffs Avon with the empty gun. She then sort of tries to use her feminine wiles, if you like, to you know offer him a place at her side. When she's captured by Chell, she immediately tries to bargain with him with the weapon. And, and can I highlight as well the dialogue she has with Dana where they're yes. changing in the room? And she's really subtle, and this is actually really well written, mm. in that she's just baiting Dana enough yep. to get her to give her a bit more information. Yes, that is a really, really good scene. Best scene in the story. Yes, I think. I think so, yeah. You say you've been here quite a long time. Since I was a small child. It must be very boring for you. Not at all. There never seems to be enough time. I have my tutorials with the computers. I like hunting and walking, and I work with my father. Doing what? We design and develop defence systems. Really? That must be fascinating. For whom do you develop these systems? Other exiles like yourselves? We're not exiles. We chose to come here. But I thought you said you were in hiding, that the Federation was searching for you. I didn't mention the Federation. Oh, how pretty. She does actually get the better of Avon during the episode and seems to read him quite well. Although that scene where she and Avon are alone on the base and she gives her assessment of him as ambitious, ruthless, you want power and you never let conscience get in the way of achieving it, does actually really feel like it is overestimating him. Yeah, I think that she's absolutely projecting in that scene and this is an example of where she does miss the mark Yeah, because I think she has misjudged what Avon's motivations are. And look, let's have this conversation now. 
this is perhaps partly reflective of the fact that she's only met him a couple of times mm. and then basically just because they've been in the same yes, room. Yes, well, that's probably the other big contrivance, isn't it, really? Yes. That not only do they meet totally unrealistically, they know each other. Yes, which hasn't been backed up on screen. Again, it's TV. We've clearly, yep. for at least this episode, Avon is now the hero, so he's got to know her a bit better. I actually think that that scene lurches wildly from kind of hilarious and kind of brilliant to incredibly naff and embarrassing and back again several times. Yeah, you would read Avon's motivation, really. Avon is not interested in ultimate power or systemic change or anything like that. Avon's goal is actually really to take himself out of the system. Yes. So that he can just be in his own little bubble and interact with the rest of the universe as he wants to. Absolutely. And when he has that conversation with Melanby about the Federation's basically defeated now, Mm. it's not hooray, it's not I'm really keen to take over, it's... Well, that's nice. Blake will be pleased. Yeah, and look, hopefully it frees me up that that's one less thing I have to worry about. Yes, and basically all he wants to do in this episode is get back to the Liberator and get back to safety. He doesn't care about anything else other than his own survival. No, so I I do honestly think she's really missed the mark there, which sort of makes the bit where she's obviously trying to entice him to join her. Is he actually considering her proposal or is it really just a ruse so he can get close enough basically to grab her? I think that... It's just another example of Avon having a problem with women, and particularly women who are trying to manipulate Yes, that's probably pretty much all women too. And that is something that is well established in the series. We do get another note there that Star One was the source of all the Federation's power, just in case we'd forgotten between seasons. Absolutely, and I think we should sort of highlight that this episode does do the JMS rule of season openings, that this must be an accessible jumping on point for for these new fans. Yep. Yep, for sure. We are probably now moving really into the latter part of the episode. There is that note in the Liberation book that when we get to the evening, Avon leaves Orac in the room with Melanby rather than take Orac to bed with him, basically, because he knows damn well that Serverland's going to come for it. Yes, and if she's going to potentially take out whoever's guarding Orac... Yes, it's not going to be him. It's not going to be him. Yes, it's nice to think that Avon deliberately put Melanby in harm's way. Yep. Now, let's talk about that scene. Now, we haven't mentioned yet that this was part of the fourth and final compilation tape, along with Power Play and Sarcophagus. This is, I can safely say, the least edited of those ones. Yes, that sounds right. But this scene is completely excised from the compilation tape. Uh, I don't know whether it's purely a time thing or it was to get the rating a bit lower, because it is a very nasty scene. And I can remember quite vividly the first time I saw the uncut version of Aftermath Seeing this scene, it's a little bit like, wow. Yeah, she blinds him and then taunts him as he's lurching around the room trying to hit her. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And it is very effective writing to have seen that girlish, charming, feminine Mm. serverland, and then just on a dime, it's just the nasty... It is actually sadistic. Mm, It is. You're still a loser, aren't you? You were then... You don't win wars by running away and hiding. However, with Melanby's death, Dana has no reason to stay. No. I will call out Avon's quip on finding his body. Yes, that is very, very cold. Father! He got away from here after all. Look, it is in some way showing his ruthless, unemotional or ultimately pragmatic side, really, that, look, you can't help him and we have got to get Aurak back or we're screwed. Do you think that Avon 
also suspected that Bellamy wasn't quite the nice guy he was appearing and was perhaps a little bit like, you've made some choices and this is the consequence? Yeah, potentially, yes. There maybe is that element to it as well. But I think given the way he keeps hurrying Dana along, I suspect it is a case he realises that no ORAC, as I said, we're screwed. Yeah. And, you know, for Avon, that is his absolute number one priority. Yes. My notes here really were that the episode perhaps becomes a bit of a runaround at this point, really, as they try to get Orak back while evading the Sarans. I made the comment that this episode generally, but the last 10 minutes particularly, there is a lot of people being snuck up, jumped on, <laughs> knocked out. And look, this is a Terry Nation script, and look, I love the man, but... Yeah, so you do get the bit where every few pages he has to put some action in because he thinks people are getting bored. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and as we're building to the climax, let's just have a lot of people sort of throwing punches, shooting arrows, a lot of action, yep. and just reach a nice crescendo. And look, it's a little bit boys are and a little bit obvious but it does reach the action dramatic crescendo that it needs to and you get the final big moment of they escape Servland escapes and yes. the Sarans uh, get on with their life yes and indeed Dana of course misses out on killing Servland as she wants to <laughs> yes I wonder if that'll become a thing <laughs> But we are now really at the end of the episode, and of course they back on the Liberator, but there is a surprise waiting for them. Wait! Summary execution is the usual punishment for boarding a Federation ship without authority. What are you doing on my ship? Absolutely. So we did see that little batship arriving yep. at the Liberator earlier, and now there are troops on board. Yes. To be continued. Indeed. Now, Richard, you've got a couple of production notes for us this time? Yeah, we'll, we'll zip through a couple of notes. I did notice one sort of, I don't know, an unintentional blooper. In the scene where they get the guns and go out to hunt down Serverland, Dana actually gives Avon one of the fighter shot guns they've been using on the Sarans rather than an actual blaster. But oh, I suspect that might just be grabbed the wrong prop, maybe. But um, one of the other notes I had, and it is another blooper, if you watch the scene where Avon goes back to get Orak and he is attacked by the Saren, very briefly, somebody pops up in the background and then drops back down again. Oh, I don't okay. Know, I don't know whether that's a crew member or a member of the public, but uh, there is somebody in a red jacket very briefly <laughs> in the background. We talked about how good this was that this was filmed on the beach and everything. This was apparently one of the episodes where they had a lot of problems with onlookers wanting to come and see what was going on. Yeah, right. And I think... If you watch, when they're doing the exterior shots, the focus on the shots is getting narrower and narrower and narrower. There are some very, very tight shots. Yes, yes. <laughs> to keep the people out of the background. I think this is also the episode where Jacqueline Pierce snagged her dress on the bramble and sort of gave everybody a bit of an impromptu show. Right, okay. To much laughter. And I think her comeback was, take a good look, I usually charge for this sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. This was the third episode recorded. They recorded Power Play and Volcano prior to this. So that's the next couple of discussions. Alan Lake had auditioned for the role of Villa right back at the start of the series. Now, that's an interesting alternative. That would have been an interesting casting choice, I think. And look, just to tick off the list, I did have a look through the reused footage for the space battle, and I think we're looking at clips from Duel, Breakdown, Redemption, Shadow, Killer, Hostage and Star One. If anyone has any others, please let us know. But I think I identified where all those clips came from. Yep. Yeah, now we are really on to our guest cast. 
Do you want to kick us off with Cy Grant, who played Hal Mellenby? Yeah, he was someone who actually led a really interesting life when you do a bit of reading about him. Sadly, we, we won't do full justice to him here, but this is actually one of his last TV roles. But he, at various times, was an actor, a singer, a poet, a writer, and indeed an activist across a very long life. Yes. The sort of quick history is, look, he was born in, in what at the time was called British Guyana and had what he termed a very colonial upbringing, very king and country, rather than focusing on the place you actually lived. He came to the UK during World War II when he enlisted in the RAF and was a flight lieutenant. He spent two years in a POW camp after being shot down over the Netherlands. Oh, wow. He found years later that a lot of the contributions of Caribbean and, and non-white servicemen really were glossed over once the official war histories and that started being written. So he did yes. spend a fair bit of his later life trying to correct that. He stayed in Britain after the war, and look, he did find post-war Britain quite difficult. He suffered a lot of discrimination. He studied law as a means to challenge the prejudice he'd felt, but again then found he couldn't really get a job Mm. in 50s Britain, so drifted into acting. He went through radio, and then his first real big break came on TV in the late 1950s. Um, He was a contributor to a current affairs program called Tonight, and apparently that made him the first coloured person seen on British TV on a regular basis. There you go. Yeah. I know one of the notes you had was that he was the voice of Lieutenant Green in Captain Scarlet. He was. Which again, I think, was held up as a bit of a positive role because Lieutenant Green was a non-white character, which again, in a kid's show at the time, having a positive non-white character was actually a really progressive thing. And, And a rarity. Yes, indeed. He did find that he encountered a lot of prejudice and whatever in acting as well. So he then went and founded his own production company and theatre company called the Drum Arts Centre, which was primarily to promote black and non-white talent which I think now is actually seen as being quite influential in developing multicultural talent. And that's really the area he then spent working for equality and and better awareness and representation of diverse talent really for the rest of his life. Yeah, look, he is quite a remarkable person. Uh, You mentioned his role in Captain Scarlet. Yep. Just a couple of others I picked out. He had a recurring role in Paradise Island in 1954. He did appear in an episode of The Persuaders, and I had to highlight his four episodes of Metal Mickey. Oh, Metal Mickey. (laughs) The other main member of the guest cast is, of course, Alan Lake playing Chell. He's a very interesting character. We'll, we'll, we'll mention that yes. in a moment. He's one of those actors who hasn't got a lot of sort of starring roles or recurring roles, but was in a lot of stuff. Mm. He did a couple of episodes of The Midnight Men in 1964. He had recurring roles in Harewood and Wake and The Lando. Uh, he was in a lot of play for today type stuff, a lot yep. of those sort of one off type things Department S, The Sweeney. Eight episodes of Dixon of Doc Green, seven episodes of Zed Cars, all of them in different roles. Yes, I was about to say, I think they're all as different characters. They're all as different characters. Same when he turns up, he does three episodes of Juliet Bravo, all as different characters. And he was in an episode of Rumpole. Yes, Uh, he he is in Rumpole Link. He's in Rumpole's Return, which was the special between seasons two and three, which is a... probably the most bizarre episode of Rumpole. It It is a very, very odd one. He's also in the final M Appeal episode of The Avengers. Away from acting, he was a keen horse rider, so I think probably galloping up and down the beach as Chell was pretty much in his wheelhouse. Yep. I guess we have to maybe talk about some of the other aspects of his life briefly. I think, sadly, he's probably best remembered as being the third husband of Diana Dawes. Yes, who was quite a famous actress in the 60s and 70s particularly. She was. Very quickly, for anyone who doesn't know who Diana Dawes was, she was a very popular actress in the 50s through to probably the early 70s. She very much had that sort of blonde bombshell sex symbol type image. Um, I think at one point she was even portrayed as the British Marilyn Monroe. Yes. At one point she was one of the highest paid performers in England. 
That sounds right, yes. But unfortunately, and this is perhaps where Alan Lake comes back into the story, unfortunately her private, or really not so private life, was splashed across a lot of the tabloids. Yes, I was simply going to make the point that the stuff that Lake and Dawes got up to, particularly that involved their son, is quite controversial. Yep. Their son has given his story to the tabloids. Yep. It's all there if you want to Google it and... um. I don't think we want to dive any further into it because it's it's quite an unpleasant story. Which, of course, unfortunately really overshadows the fact that she was seen as actually being quite a talented actress. Yes. And unfortunately really sort of overshadowed her husband. Moving back to him, look, he had a number of setbacks in his career, including a stint in prison after a fight in a pub and quite a serious horse riding accident that left him unable to work. And that unfortunately in turn, I think, led to problems with both alcohol and mental health. And I think when he was able to work again, when we get into the late 70s, his career, unfortunately, never really recovered. No, we need to mention, of course, he did appear in Doctor Who. Yes, he did. In Underworld. Yes, as Herrick. Yes. Diana Dawes passed away in the early 1980s, which unfortunately led him then into a fairly deep depression. And sadly, his life ends with him taking his own life in 1984. So, taking a bit of a deep breath after that, we'll now perhaps move into the minor roles. Yeah, so Sally Harrison, who played Lauren, doesn't have a lot of professional credits. She was in the theatre 625 as a teenager in 1968. She was in an episode of Man About the House, three episodes of The Professionals, and an episode of Bergerac. Much as with Alan Lake, the roles in The Professionals were all different parts. She started in Panto, I think, as a child, and then worked, I think, at different times as a model and an ice skater and a dancer, as well as acting roles. She now apparently lives in Spain and operates a horse riding school. Now, Richard Franklin only has a few lines as Trooper One. But, of course, we do love the Doctor Who references here at Spaceball, so... Yes, we said we're going to mention them all, and look, this is a very obvious one, because, of course, he did 42 episodes of Doctor Who as Captain Mike Yates during the Perwy era. Before that, he did six episodes of Crossroads. He went on to do 34 Everdale Farms as Dennis Rigg. He was in the 2013 Twilight of the Gods, and he actually stood for Parliament at four consecutive general elections, starting in 1992 for the Lib Dems, 1997 for the Referendum Party, 2001 for the UK Independence Party, and he then founded his own party, the Silent Majority Party, which he stood for in 2005. And are they still an active uh, part of UK politics? I think they still occasionally run people at council level, yes. Yes, okay. Well, fair enough. I know he did publish a book, I think, a few years ago around his political views and, and how he found being in British politics. Yes, and he did fall out with a couple of his old colleagues from Doctor Who over a few of his views as well. Yes, yes, I believe so. Going back to Mike Yates, I think the story that's usually told there that he was actually an army captain during his national service days. He did quite a bit of stage and theatre and panto work, including directing, and that's why there's some of the Doctor Who stories he's not in, because he was actually working somewhere else directing stage productions. That's right, yes. The one we missed, of course, was the fact that he's in Rogue One. Yes. Now, you probably need to know that it's him and look for him. Yes. But he's in the scene where they go to meet all the scientists. Yes, and shoot them all. And then shoot them all, yes. He is one of them. (laughs) And the final member of the guest cast has even fewer lines. He plays trooper number two. That is Michael Melia. Look, this is the start of a very long career for him. He was also in Rumpel, Rumpel in the Last Resort. He was in Minder, Morse, Nancy Astor, a bunch of Dangerfields, 126 Dream Teams, and 104 episodes of EastEnders as Eddie Royal. Yes, which I think is perhaps now maybe what he's most remembered for. But of course, again, we love the Doctor Who references. Yes. Um, he was the pterolectal leader <laughs> in the visitation. Yes. And I believe 
sweated so much inside that suit that all the black makeup they put around it was in his socks by the end of the... <laughs> yes, I don't think he had a pleasant time doing that. No, not at all. We are now regenerating a segment because we are jettisoning, look, it was the 1970s. Yes. And now, look, it was the 1980s. The main note I had, and look, we did sort of cover this during the discussion, was in a modern series, the opening couple of minutes would have been a total CGI fest of space battles and the Liberator knocking out ships left, right and centre. Oh, the whole first act probably would have been the battle. Yes. Rather than the first scene. For sure. A couple of points I wanted to make. Although this isn't a segment just for making fun of bad special effects, I've got to say, look, the capsule looked good, the capsule on the surface looked good, but as I flagged earlier, I've got to highlight the capsule going past that sort of swirling water dust was bad. And look, it is just another example of how much money do you spend on an effect that's literally going to be on screen for four seconds. Yeah, for sure. Going into the real world in the 1980s, it is worth noting that between Star 1 and Aftermath, Mrs. Thatcher does come to power in May of 1979. Now, whether there's a deliberate parallel between Britain's first woman Prime Minister and the Federation getting a woman president, I don't know. I suspect it's probably coincidence. Well, they did it in Doctor Who. They did it in Doctor Who, so it is worth drawing. The other thing that I thought was worth just going into the background on is that it would be wrong of us to not mention there are arguable Nelson Mandela parallels with Hal Mellonby's character in that he is a black individual Mm -hmm. he was a rebel leader he was somebody who was seen to be slightly more militant and violent potentially which is certainly what mandela was known for for a while and in the same way that this point mandela had spent the best part of 20 years on robin island malambi is effectively prisoned as well now at this point we are in the last couple of years of mandela's time in robin island and this is the point where he's really starting to be rehabilitated in the Western world, and he's yep. coming into a, a lot more prominence. In fact, it's only a few weeks after this episode aired in March 1980 that the journalist Percy Quiboza is credited with the foundation of the actual Free Mandela campaign, and that's when the Security Council at the UN starts to call for his release, yep. as opposed by the UK and the US, who still thought that his ties to the Communist Party were a little bit too, too, on, the um, too yep. on the nose. Yep. And I'll also mention as well, you could make the argument that there are some Steve Biko parallels as well. I'm not quite sure because Steve Biko had died in 1977 and was probably out of the headlines here. And, yeah, by well, that point, yeah. And, and Cry Freedom wasn't made until 1987. So I think we are at that point now where Biko was fading from the public consciousness. And it becomes about Mandela. And becomes yeah. about Mandela again. So yeah. I thought that was worth noting was happening in the background. Wow, okay. Right, well, that brings us to the Liberator Data Bank. Now, we've sort of touched on a few points here, and and look, a lot of the points here are obviously going to be about the war and how that played out. Yeah, look, the big thing I think we have to add here is that Star 1 has now been destroyed. Yep. That was, of course, the big plot arc for the whole of Season 2 of Blake 7, so seeing that go is a big deal. We had set up in Star 1 just what the consequences of Star 1 going down would actually be. So we can assume not only has the Federation lost control, but there is now widespread panic, disaster, starvation. No doubt supply lines and manufacturing lines in the Federation are completely gone. There is probably a lot of suffering and struggle in a lot of worlds now, regardless of what the Federation's up to. And Serverland does make that point during the the episode, all those worlds now left totally defenceless and fend for themselves. I guess the other thing with the war, look, the Federation troopers make the point that they destroyed close to 600 ships, which ties in with the size of the fleet we're given in Star 1. Yes. We are explicitly told that uh, winning the battle cost the Federation over 80% of its Starfleet. So, as we said, that means they're really 
is going to be small pockets probably of federation control and a whole lot of just lawlessness. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So we'll potentially see how that plays out. Across the season, we will. Which I guess now brings us to what happens next. Well, I actually think this is going to be one of our simpler segments here because yes. as far as Saren's concerned, Chell just gets along with being Chell and yep. going around and doing whatever he does. Seeing so if there's anybody else he can hack to bits. Yep. And everything else is literally the whole point of the next episode. Indeed, that's right. And the note I had here was just power play. I guess we do also see, look, Servalane is seen to escape into the Melonby's base, so we know that she'll be back. But otherwise, yes, pretty much set up for next time. Absolutely. Which brings us to what cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? For an episode really where Avon is the star, there actually isn't a lot. There are some cool lines in here, but it's not really, it's not like Star 1 actually, where you know every second line is an Avon zinger. Yeah, we said earlier that he's obviously the main hero of this episode, mm. and I think that being written in that Terry Nation hero style means there is a bit less room for him to to do that, plus there are fewer people for him to make zingers at. Well, that's true. But look, I did like the line, well, I hope she's not totally insane. Under these circumstances, that could be a little bit embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) He does have the point when he's talking to Melanby where he says, it's hard to sustain a military dictatorship when you've lost most of the military. Yes, I did note the line that you highlighted earlier, he got away from here after all. That is pretty brutal. It is very brutal. I think probably the main one from this episode maybe is where he's interacting with Servalan and he does the imagination, my only limit, I'd be dead in a week. <laughs> Look, that is his most famous, but I think my favourite has to be the bit where he tells Dana not to shoot Servalan. <laughs> and this turns around, I don't want you telling me afterwards it was an accident. <laughs> Yeah, a couple others I had. Again, when he's talking to Mellonby, he says, I only hope Blake survived long enough to realise that he was winning. Both wars. Yes, that's quite pointed, actually. It is. And finally, and it's actually, I think, immediately before this, how Mellonby says, Blake and the Liberator? I've been hearing reports for the last couple of years. You were magnificent. Not from where I was sitting. (laughs) Yeah, so look, for an episode that we didn't feel was all that zinger-heavy, he actually does get some good lines. He does. We did say that Star One really was sort of a classic quote fest, so... Yes, it has been toned down a little bit from there. Yeah, it has. So we are really now at the end of the episode, and we are up to our Player of the Week. Now, I don't know whether we're going to get a snap for this one. And I, I will be honest and say, I actually found this one a little difficult. I had two or three people I, I was circling between, but I'll let you go first. Who's your Player of the Week? Look, I was also circling between a few, but I landed in the end on Joe Simon. Not a snap. Okay. Certainly an honourable mention, but not yeah, a snap. I felt as I highlighted earlier, not only does she hit the ground running yep. literally and figuratively, but she really establishes her character very, very well. For someone who is still a very new and young actress, she's very, very good. Well, I mean, this is basically her first television role. so It is, and she, as I said, does very successfully lift what would otherwise be very stilted dialogue. Yep. And who did you go for? As I said, Josette Simon was definitely on my honourable mention list and she was one of the main two I was considering. The other one I had on my honourable mention was Terry Nation because I think given what this episode has to achieve, I think he pretty much pulls it off. I think so, yes. But I actually have gone for Jacqueline Pierce 
because I think she just takes charge really in every scene she's in. Yeah, look, she was definitely my runner-up, so I can yep. totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah, that scene with Josette Simon when they're in the bedroom circling each other, I think that is the best scene in the episode. Given that it could have been just a very, very dull exposition scene, yep. the fact that it's actually one of the strongest scenes in the episode, mm. I think is a real standout, which I guess brings me certainly to my final comments, yep. which is, again, to say... This is an episode I've enjoyed a lot more than I expected. Yeah. There are still some quite naff moments. I think some of Severland's stuff, some of the Avon stuff, as sort of the hero and everything. It's a little bit weird. Maybe there's a little bit of whiplash sort yes. of coming off the back of Star 1 into this. And look, I, I dare say we'll probably tease some of that out maybe as we move through the season. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, we haven't mentioned the fact that Blake hasn't turned up yet. Yep. And we'll be exploring where that goes. Yes. But look, a not, not a classic, not a top ten for me. but No, likewise. But, but actually quite enjoyable and successful episode. Yeah, very much so. Much as I said at the top, look, I didn't have a particularly strong memory or particularly healthy opinion of this one going in. It was better than I remembered. But I don't think it's a classic. No, I think that's very fair. Well, we did end the episode on a cliffhanger, so we'll yes. be back next time to talk about power play. Mm-hmm. But until then, I've been Dave. I'm Richard. Set course for Chenga. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. Answerable to no one. Ours will be the only voice. Imagination, our only limit. Imagination, my only limit. I'd be dead in a week.